Second Corinthians chapter 6. In chapter 4 and 5, Paul spoke about his purpose. And he is very clear about that purpose. And it was not to stay forever on earth. It was to save as many people as he could with the hope of a resurrected body in heaven. And so if our earthly tabernacle, that's our tent, that's our body, it's going to be dissolved, but that's okay because we're going to have a better body in heaven. And due to that and due to the terror of the Lord that he understood, he says that's why we persuade men in chapter 5 and verse 11. That's why we're trying to do the very best we can to spread the gospel, to teach the lost. And Paul referred to himself and the apostles in chapter 5 and verse 20 as ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is one who works for another. Paul knew who he worked for. He worked for Christ, and what he did was he saw his role and his job as negotiating for Christ, as spreading Christ's message, trying to persuade and teach others to be reconciled to him. In earthly matters, in governments, you might, a country might send an ambassador or a diplomat to another country, speak to the people of that country to negotiate terms of peace, like a treaty or something like that. So if you can think of that analogy, Paul is viewing simply his role as that he's a messenger of Christ sent to tell others Christ's message and the whole purpose is, is God wants people who are not currently together with him to be reconciled. He's given us the, the means and the plan. Jesus became a curse for us, he says in chapter 5 and verse 21. This is very much like, that. you know, in the Old Testament, it mentioned that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And that became a stumbling block to the Jews because they, how can God, who is holy, first off die? And how, how, and how can he be cursed and take away the curse that belonged to us? And so that is a thing that they had difficulty with. But yet that is the message. God, in his wisdom, chose to use that by means of saving us. So look with me in chapter 6. This is where he picks up. We see Paul's plea to the Corinthians concerning these matters. We see verse 1, he says, We then, as workers, together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Isn't it interesting how Paul referred to himself as a worker together with him? You know, he's, he's not fighting him. He's not doing his own work. But he's a worker with Christ. He's doing what the Lord wanted. Why did the Lord come to the earth? He himself was clear about his mission. He said he came to seek and save that which was lost. And so if Paul is going to be a worker with him, then that's now his mission, whatever. You know, it's interesting how sometimes Christians lose the purpose of their mission. 
it shouldn't be that confusing. Jesus came to save sinners. And if we are a Christian and we're following in his steps, that needs to now be our mission. Now, not everybody has the same exact role in how to accomplish that, but that needs to be every person here's mission if you want to follow Christ. Your goal is to help Christ accomplish that. He died. You believe in that cause? You believe in what he did and why? Then your mission should be to help in some way, some fashion, whatever way that you are able and that you can, to save as many people as you possibly can. First yourself and then as many others as you can. Now you don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be, be not all our apostles like Paul himself. But it is, it is and should be your mission to help save souls. A person who claims to be a Christian but does not care about lost souls and is not moved and does not care about why Jesus came has lost the very essence of why he came. If you think you can be a Christian and not care about lost souls, I've got to ask you, wh what are you doing and what do you believe? And why are you a Christian? It needs to be our purpose to save ourselves and as many as we can. Paul is clear about that. So he, but now when he tells them, don't receive the grace of God in vain, what does that imply? That you can. He gives a gift that was spoken of at, at the Lord's Supper that we just took, that we can never earn, we can never do anything or do amount of good that we could say we've earned the gift that he is offering us. But to then receive that gift and then to go away and to live the same and not be changed or to live like the world or to continue to serve the purposes that the world throws at us or serve yourself, you've now, in essence, Received the grace of God in vain. If you despise that gift to the point where you would walk away and quit, then you have received the grace of God in vain if you forget the message and stop living it. Verse 2, he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah said, I have heard thee. Isaiah wrote to... Isn't it interesting that Isaiah wrote a message of hope to a nation who had forsaken God. Now, tradition, it's not in Scripture, but tradition tells us that Isaiah suffered and says that he was t tied up in a sack, placed in a hollow of a tree, and Manasseh sawed him in two. Now, Hebrews mentions those in Hebrews 11 about those who were sawn asunder. If that is talking about what history has attested to, then that would be him included in that. But why would that be? You're writing a message. First off, that's God's message. It's not his own. That's what Isaiah did. But he's not writing a message that would be hateful at all. 
But it is a message that calls out the sins and calls people to repentance, which that's the part that people don't like. But it's a message of hope to say you, you, things will get better and Christ is going to come. He's, he talks about this messenger that, uh, of Christ that would come and be the suffering servant. And Isaiah is put to death for teaching an encouraging message of hope. Don't be surprised then. If the apostles who are giving the message of hope and how to be saved, that they weren't always well treated and accepted. And don't be surprised then that if you follow the apostles' message that they wrote down to us, if the world doesn't find this very favorable to you as well. John said, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. What do you expect? But when God answered Isaiah and said, I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Then Paul now says, he makes a comment about that statement of Isaiah and he says, now is that accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Have you thought about that? When might you decide personally that you want to be a part of this, that you want to be saved, that you believe in this message of hope, and that you want to live by this in hope of a resurrection as Paul, and that you want to make this your purpose. When are you going to make that decision? Are you going to keep putting it off? Are you going to keep say one of these days or are you going to say as Paul is pointing out here to now is the time now is the day apply it to you and apply it to you right now now that's Paul's plea now look at Paul's priority with that he says in verse 3 giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. So he says, don't give any offense in anything. That doesn't mean that Paul's words didn't cause people to feel offended. That's not what that means. It means don't put a stumbling block or don't hinder someone from coming to the cause of Christ. Now we've got to use some wisdom in how we present it and we've got to use some wisdom in how we live. If we're professing to be workers for Christ and yet our lives say something different, we could be placing a, a stumbling block. In the first letter, they could have been placing a stumbling block before someone by uh, eating meat sacrificed to an idol when another feels like that would bother their conscience and now you've, what you've done is you've caused them to go against their conscience and sin against God. Even if you, you know that's just a piece of meat and there's only one God, you could be putting a stumbling block before another. 
The priority, though, is that we want all to be saved and we want all to go to heaven, and I don't want to do anything that prevents a person from hearing the gospel or receiving it or, or maintaining the faith. So I, that needs to be my priority if that's Paul's priority because he doesn't want the, the cause of Christ to be discredited. He doesn't want that message. Paul's not preaching himself. Paul's not doing this for himself. He's not trying to bring light to himself. And anybody else that needs to preach needs to make sure that, that that's their fo focus. It's not to try to make themselves uh, impressive towards others. That should never be the cause of, you know, motivation of why a person wants to teach or preach. It needs to be that we want to simply teach God's Word and then we need to get out of the way and hopefully let the, the hearers make that decision for themselves, whether they will or they won't. We hope they will, but let's try to not do anything that puts a stumbling block and causes someone not to hear what God's message has to say. At least let it not be our fault. Now there's going to be sometimes where people are stubborn and they won't hear and it doesn't matter how you say it or there's, some, there's, there's, there's going to be that element and, and we can't really help that part. But I believe what Paul is saying, I don't want it to be my fault if somebody doesn't hear this message. In verse 4, he talks about the, the pain that he was willing to go through before these priorities. And that was to save souls and to proclaim the message of Christ. Now I have to ask myself and you have to ask yourself, what is it really that we're after in this life? It's normal and, and I'm human and I understand wanting comforts. I understand wanting things to be better physically, materially, financially. That's normal. But what am I willing to give up? What was Paul willing to give up? What kind of difficulty, what kind of affliction and pain was he willing to go through? Back up even further. What kind of discomforts sacrifices and pain was our Lord willing to endure you know what a person is willing to take and suffer is an indication of how much they value what they're suffering for the more you value the Lord's mission the more you're willing to suffer for him because you believe it's worth it and I, I believe that's centered to what Paul is talking about when you read what Paul was willing to endure, you don't get the impression that he was in it for the money. What Paul endured was, he, he says, afflictions, necessities. Uh, these afflictions, necessities, some of your translations may say hardships. You, and you know, Paul is saying a whole lot in some very short words here. Uh, and he's talked about the difficulties he's had. And he sums them up very quickly. But you don't know how long and how painful, and, and, and I, don't, I don't think I grasp this, until you're in 
these situations yourself, you don't really understand how difficult and how painful these situations were. But when he talks about the kinds of things he endured, those are the things that show evidence that they were apostles of Christ. It's interesting how some people might think, well, how would you show that you were an apostle of Christ? Would it be by a school that you went to, by how well you look, or some outward external way that's, you know, sometimes mankind, and sometimes, sad to say, even brethren sometimes focus on the wrong credentials to determine whether a person is in the faith and capable of teaching or preaching. And yet, Paul, what he's saying is, these are the evidences that I'm following Christ. These things that I'm willing to endure, and I have endured. And, and to the Galatians, he said, I have the scars to prove it. When he talks about these stripes, the beatings that Paul went through, we, we learn about the scourgings of Christ, and we learn about how several times Paul was beaten with rods, other times could have been with scourges, but the, the so many stripes save one was basically a point of saying just to the point of death. Sometimes Paul was left for dead after stonings. So when I think about that and I think about him saying he has scars, I think he had physical scars. And whenever uh, the scriptures talk about how that his bodily presence was weak, I, I don't know what all that involved. Probably included some sense of the scars that he was displaying. When in another place he said, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. What does that indicate? I don't know. When you looked at the Apostle Paul and you saw the evidences of the physical beatings and stonings and difficulties, but perhaps all that, beyond all that, you can see a man who is very genuine when you saw what he cared about and what was important to him and what he was willing to endure. His mental state was because he viewed something so important that he was willing to do this. I think a lot of people, if they ever saw the Apostle Paul, they would say he was very radical on why he was willing to endure all the things that he went through. The imprisonments. The watchings. Some of your translations will say sleepless nights and fastings. Some of your translations will say hunger. So whether those fastings were for the cause of Christ, which I believe he would have done intentionally, and I think there were probably other times where he went empty on his stomach because he didn't have a meal that time. And so I have to ask myself, how much do we love our food and do we love our sleep, myself included? I, I like all these things. And, and yet we see what Paul was willing to give up and what he was willing to endure. And, I, you know, this makes me uncomfortable whenever I try to wrestle with what Paul is saying here when he says, 
these are the evidences of my apostleship. You see, the, because of the pain he was willing to go through. But we also see that even though he went through that pain, that pain did not turn him to be a cynical person. Now that is another added aspect to help us see this. Sometimes when people go through so many hard knocks in life, it makes them cold. It makes them non-empathetic. It makes them not care. And it, it makes them have some very uh, unkind outlook on life and things. And yet, notice how Paul describes his inner character that he's still striving to have. And that is, in verse, five, verse 6, by pureness, by knowledge, that means understanding, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, that is genuine love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. You know, the, there's offensive and defensive weapons. Both the right hand would carry a sword, the left hand would carry a shield, so forth. Every, he's got the whole armor of God. But notice that Paul is still ha he still has a sweetness of character. He still has a gentleness about him. He still has kindness. You know, it's, the world doesn't view kindness sometimes as a quality of a strong person. And sometimes I get disgusted whenever I, I hear people teaching men how to be men and they say not to be nice. You know, the, if you want to be a real man, you've got to stop being nice. You know, obviously people who speak that way don't know our Lord. And they don't know the Apostle Paul. And they don't know what we're trained to be. Jesus was both gentle and strong. We, we talked about that in the, uh, in the Bible class. To be and have the qualities of manhood and womanhood is both that of one who cares about others above their own self. Those who love others regardless of what others do to them. And this is interesting. You would think that if Paul had endured all this, would it turn him bitter against the people who beat him? Would it turn him hateful towards those who shamefully treated him the way they did? People who wanted him dead. People who took a vow and said, we're not going to eat until this man is dead. Would that then make you say, you know what? I'm going to show them and I'm going to get my revenge. Yet Paul does not have any of those kinds of characteristics. Paul continues to show patience to people who are mistreating him. He's continuing to show kindness. He's continuing to try to teach and pray for and love people who didn't always appreciate it. The Corinthians included. 
And Paul is saying, I'm still loving you, regardless of whether I'm getting it in return. And this teaches us how to love. A parent should love their child, regardless of whether the child always knows and appreciates everything the parent is doing for the child. God does that with us. He loves us. We don't always know and appreciate all the things that he's doing. Sometimes we take those things for granted. We don't know the full cost. And yet, he continues to love us. Paul is doing that. Paul is continuing to have patience with people. And that's the example that's laid before us. You know, the way we should look at it is, how another person treats me should make zero difference of how I treat them. What they do, what they say, what they say about me, that, that does not change what my duty is to them. My duty is to continue to love them, regardless of what they do about me. And that, that should be every Christian's aim, is to be more like that. And then verse 8, we see the paradox uh, type statements. That a paradox is like a, seemingly con a seeming contradiction, but it's really not. So, verse 8, by honor and dishonor. You know, Paul is treated as if he's dishonorable, and yet he is. He's honest. He's genuine. By evil report and good report. I think what he's saying here is, there are those who say evil things about me. Yet I know who I really am. And then he says, as deceivers and yet true. Some were claiming that Paul was a liar. Some, some even among the Corinthians were questioning his apostleship. So this is why he's having to again speak about his approval with God. So they're claiming he's a deceiver, yet he knows he's genuine. As unknown, yet well-known. You know, the, there are people who don't really know Paul's true purpose. Yet God knows him. And there are those true Christians who knew him. But then he says, as dying, and behold, we live. Even though Paul was taking up his cross daily, even though Paul was at threat of his life continually, he was full of life within himself. Now that is a powerful thing and mindset to have, isn't it? And he says, as chastened and not killed. So he's not dead yet even though he was beaten. In verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I'm sure there were times where Paul had his moments to be sad. There were times where Paul wept. And yet, you couldn't take away his inner joy. Joy is much more powerful than circumstantial rejoicing, circumstantial happiness. Things go well today, so you're happy. That's all dependent upon things that happen to you. But we're talking about a type of joy 
that you can have even when you're sad. As poor yet making many rich. Paul didn't have much of anything materially, yet he viewed himself as having everything. You know, do we look at it that way? If I have the Lord and my sins are forgiven, I have everything. If I, if I gain the whole world and lose my own soul, I have nothing. If I don't have Jesus and His, and His blessing, I could have all the money in the world and I have nothing. I am, as, I am a poor pauper. And so... Isn't that the way to be? Not that it's wrong to have things. Paul said to the Philippians, I've learned to both be full and to be hungry. But verse 10, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So those are the paradoxical statements. Now we see him speaking to them as a parent would to a child. Verse 11, O ye Corinthians. A lot of times he personalizes these letters like he did to the old foolish Galatians. Here he's saying, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in, our, in your own bowels. What he's saying here is you're not restricted by us but you're restricted of your own doing. You're putting these personal prisons on yourself because I haven't done this to you. I'm, my heart is still wide open. I'm still speaking to you. I, I'm speaking plainly. I'm, I'm opening my heart and my mouth to tell you how I really feel. And now what he's asking is, could you do that in return? In verse 13, Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. That is, open your heart to me. I'm opening mine to you. Open yours back to me. Verse 14, we see then the prohibitions that he gives Related to this purpose and priority that he has and all the things he was willing to suffer and what he's given to them, notice what he's now calling them to do. Here's a practicality to the things he's been saying. Verse 14, Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The prohibition is... Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, we have to unpack that and what that means because I want to say clearly that I, there's a couple of things that I think some people think this means that I don't think it means. I don't think he's saying not... To, uh, he's not prohibiting all social interaction with non-believers. 
Because in 1 Corinthians 5, he said, I wrote into you a letter not to keep company with those who are fornicators, but not, not the fornicators of this world. Then you'd have to go out of the world. And he's, so he's not saying don't have some kind of interaction with non-believers. Paul had interaction with non-believers because he's trying to save them. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, if unbelievers come into your assembly, what you want is for their, them to repent and, and to say God's in you of a truth. So he's not saying don't interact with unbelievers. He's not saying don't allow unbelievers to enter in your worship assembly because of that. 1 Corinthians 14, why would he say if those who come in who are unbelievers among you, you see your goal, you want everybody to come and hear the gospel. So I don't think he's saying to disallow unbelievers to come into a worship assembly. We want, we want all people to come and learn. What he is saying is don't endorse and don't be involved in the sinful activities of unbelievers. Jesus ate with sinners. I don't think he went to the bars and drank with them. So you've got to understand, what, when he says, be not unequally yoked, Deuteronomy 22 gives this analogy of not, you don't, you don't hook a donkey and an ox under one yoke and, and, and plow with it. Those, that would be an unequal yoke. Besides, that's not very practical. It's not going to work very well. One of those animals pulls differently than the other and it's, it's going to be all wonky because it's, you're not going to have the, 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 a good plowing line if you do that. It's not going to work for you practically as a Christian if you're involved in sinful activities. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't be partakers with them. He goes on to say, not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So we don't need to endorse or bid God's speed to sinful activities. I believe that is what he is saying when he says, don't be unequally yoked. One way of doing that would be involving yourselves in some idolatrous practice. I, th I think that is included when he says, Verse 16, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? He's alluding back to what he said in the first letter about those who are eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he talks about communion and taking of the Lord's table and the table of, of devils or the Lord's table and the table of, of idols. You can't ride the fence and be acceptable to God. Elijah knew this. He said, how long do you halt between two opinions? You're going to serve God or are you going to serve Baal? We, we need to get the same point. Are you, are you trying to please and do things that please God while trying to please others in the world and be like them and fit in and do the things they're doing in order to be accepted by them? You can't have it both ways. You have to decide. And I believe that's why he says in verse 17, you've got to be separate. Now, I don't think he means separate in place. Now, the passage he's referring to in, in, in Isaiah 52, I believe was a, a reference to them coming out of Babylon, coming out of captivity, but not just coming out in body, but coming out in spirit. 
that they're going to leave the Babylonians' worship practices behind and make sure that they don't mimic or copy the things that they're doing. You and I need to know that. There's a separateness that we need to have. It's not in presence necessarily. Now, there might be times where I have to get away from it in person in order to get away from it spiritually. But you, it needs to be clear that you are not participating in sinful practices. When he says, touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you, there needs to be things that we, we don't have any part in. If it's something God does not approve of, we need to stay clear of it. Keep our hands and our heart clean before God. You're not going to save the world by involving yourselves in things that the world is doing. How are you going to get them to change and come out of that if you're doing what they're doing? The way you save the world is by being different than the world. Because you don't do the, some of the things they do. And it's okay if they view you as a little weird at first. God will receive you. They might not, but God says, I will receive you. That's what really matters in verse 17. He's our Father. Our earthly Father might not accept us if we, if we please God, but I have the Father in heaven. David said that in the Psalms. If, if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. We need to recognize that it's way more important to be a part of the spiritual family and be right with God than it is to, to be accepted among our blood relatives or, or to be what our friends think is cool. You know, none of that really should matter as much to us. We should strive to win them to the Lord, but don't let them win you, and you need to stay separate. They need to say there's something different about you. Why do you live the way you live and, and believe the way you believe? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you believe in his sacrifice, why not apply the blood of his sacrifice to you by repenting, changing your way, confessing that he's Lord? Don't be embarrassed of him. Declaim that. And be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. And you can be the new creature that Paul spoke of. And you can have that hope. And you can have a, a, a treasure that the world can't ever take from you. They might could take your life. They might could harm you. They might could ridicule you. They might could say all kinds of things and do all kinds of things. But God will preserve your soul. If you're a Christian, keep your purpose. See how you can find somebody today or this week to, to speak to about the gospel. Ask them if they would like to have a Bible study. If you don't feel comfortable leading that, set it up and one of us will be thrilled to be able to come and, and do that. Do what you can. Seek an opportunity to help people be reconciled to God. That was Paul's aim. 
If you've sinned and, and you want to make correction, you can come to the front, whatever your need is, while we stand and as we sing.